0: Ready? I know you woke up this morning and said, I got to get a cup of coffee. I need to be alert and awake so I can sit in church today and hear a 45-minute sermon on divorce. Amen? Let's do it. You know, this is one of the reasons uh, that we typically study God's Word book by book, passage by passage, doing our best not to skip over anything And that way, we force ourselves to hear what God wants us to hear, not what we would prefer to hear. That's what God's Word does. It centers us, right? It course-corrects. It brings us face-to-face with reality as it is and as God intends it to be. The Bible wasn't written to make us feel comfortable, was it? Nor was it written to make us feel good about ourselves. It was written to reveal to us God's will to reveal our departure from it. How he made a way for us to be rescued from our folly, from our failure, restored back to him and live in a way that brings glory to him and good to his people. And we titled our study through the book of Mark, we titled it The Visitation When Hope Shook This That's exactly what Jesus did when he stepped into the world, right? He shook everything up as he proclaimed not what people wanted to hear, but what God had to say. And here today, we are continuing to hold on to the conviction that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that men and women of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so we we sit here under God's word. Not asking ourselves whether or not uh, we're going to enjoy this. Not asking ourselves whether or not we think the preacher is doing a good job. He's trying. we sit here asking ourselves what does God have to say to me today do my thoughts and my behavior line up with that and is the Holy Spirit moving me to make a change or do something about it so who wants to hear this morning about divorce? Okay. If that's what our maker wants, if, if we trust that he is the one who's in control of all things, and he set each one of us down here so that we can hear his word about divorce and marriage, then okay he must have good reason for it. So are you ready, church? Are you ready? Are you sure? Okay, here we go. Mark chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them Jesus was slowly making his way down toward Jerusalem, the place where there would be some certain significant events that would take place, the ones that we actually focused on just a couple weeks ago. And on his way, he lands in this area known as Perea. It's an area that's east of the Jordan River where many Jews lived, but also there are plenty of Jews that would pass through this way, on their way down to Jerusalem, trying to avoid Samaria. And there are reasons for that. We can go into that another time if you are not aware of those reasons. The crowds gathered to hear Jesus. And as usual, Jesus taught them. But once again, there were those present who were not particularly amiable when it came to the message that Jesus was presenting. Verse 2, the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now these religious elites, they were not searching for truth. I think we can be fairly confident about that. They were fishing for a way to trip Jesus up and to discombobulate the affections of the crowd and perhaps to even put Jesus' life in jeopardy. It wasn't unlike those political ads that we see so very often when we've got a a vote coming up, an election coming up, and they're aimed at smearing a candidate's reputation. And so they'll point out things, sometimes things that are not true, sometimes things that may be true, and other times things that actually are true. And if the word got out about these things, well, they would be frowned upon by most of the voters. Jesus was known to be rather dogmatic in his teaching, right? If the Pharisees could tease out his beliefs on something as sensitive and personal as the topic of divorce, well, then that would probably shave off a healthy portion of his followers. No different from today. If a church takes a stand on a particular issue that the surrounding culture feels strongly about, in the other direction, then that church risks a hit to its popularity. It risks tension both within and without. It risks lawsuits. It risks threats. Here at Bethany, our stance on gender and marriage and divorce and other issues, that's already been the subject of online criticism. You can go look for it. It's there. By the way, if you want to know what we believe on those things, you can go to our website and you can look under what we believe. And at the very bottom, if you want what we believe on marriage and gender issues, you can find a link there. Or you can just go search the Nashville Statement and you'll find out there. Why do we hold these unpopular beliefs? It's because we're rebels. We're rebels and we just want to stir the pot and we want to create problems, right? No. It's the same reason Jesus does, as we'll see in a few moments. And Jesus wasn't trying to win any popularity contests here. It seems the Pharisees wanted to capitalize on that, and they wanted to hurt his popularity. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, it, it could also be that part of their motivation was to put his life at risk. Does anyone remember what happened to John the Baptist? Do you remember why it happened? John the Baptist was proclaiming; speaking out about Herod Antipas and Herod's wife to Herodias, the former wife of his brother. And John was saying, this is immoral, this should not be. And here Jesus is, now teaching in Perea, part of Herod's territory. Oh, maybe if Herod gets word On Jesus' stance on divorce, maybe he will suffer the same fate as John did. And there we go. Problem solved. He's out of the picture. Hmm. What was Jesus going to do now? Let's take a look. The Pharisees say, Say, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What do you think, good teacher? And Jesus replies, What did Moses command you? And Jesus was no dummy. Another translation says, have you not read? He knew that they knew what everyone else knew and that there is some precedent, some precedent for divorce set way back when they answer. Verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. The passage that they're referring to is Deuteronomy 24. Let's look, look there quickly just to familiarize with this, us, ourselves with this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife... And the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for it is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, do you notice this is not an actual command about uh, getting divorced. It's not Moses saying that, okay, okay, you can get divorced, here's what you need to do. That's not what this is about. It just lays out a particular circumstance in which a man divorces his wife and she gets remarried to someone else and then she gets divorced again or is no longer married to that that man. The command here is that it is forbidden for her to then go back to the original husband and get remarried. In fact, it's stated it's an abomination before the Lord. So, nothing is said here about God or Moses giving a commandment for anyone to get a divorce. It simply recognizes that divorce was a thing and then puts some regulation on it. Now, human hearts are always looking for a way to justify their actions, aren't they? They are. They want to keep their heads up high and let the world know that there's nothing wrong with whatever their hearts have led them to do. So you can imagine how much time and energy was poured into examining and interpreting and trying to figure out everything that this passage in Deuteronomy could possibly mean. And rather than focusing on the actual command given here, years of rabbinical effort were spent trying to parse out that word, indecency. What does that refer to? That holds the key. If we can figure out what indecency is, ah, then we know that maybe we can get a divorce. We can maybe assume that there are legitimate reasons for getting a divorce here. What did he mean by indecency? Well, some had come to the conclusion, a certain rabbinic school had come to the conclusion that it could mean just about anything. Anything is indecent. Just about anything that a woman does that her husband doesn't like is reason for a divorce. And that could be finding out that she lied to him about him being the only man that he, she has ever loved. Or it could be that she has... Exposed her ankles in public? Let down her hair in public? Or even if he discovered that she had overcooked his favorite dish? Essentially, if a man wanted a reason to separate from his wife, it would be divorced from her, or just wanted to, to hitch up with somebody else that he liked better. He didn't have to look very, very hard to find an excuse, a reason to justify it. The heart wants what it wants, and it wants to prove to everyone else that there is nothing wrong with what it wants. And our world isn't that different, is it? Marriage has been twisted, it has been cheapened to be nothing more than a social contract of sentiment and convenience. It's about saving money on taxes, it's about legitimizing passions, whatever they may be, rather than a lifelong binding covenant between one man and one woman. And divorce is relatively easy. It's anticipated, In some cases, it's actually assumed. Have you ever sat there at a wedding, kind of nudged the person next to you and started taking bets on how long this one's going to last? I've done that. You can ask my wife. We're people who love to have a backup plan. We love to have an escape route. Every time uh, I stand there with a, a groom and tells me, he's starting to get cold feet. I just, I just try to calm him down and give him some peace about it by saying, you, don't, you really don't need to worry. This doesn't have to last forever. <laughs> what an awful thing that would be if I said something like that. No, I've never said that, never will say that, well, unless I'm joking with someone who I know I can trust. Here's the thing. If the Bible is actually true, And if there actually is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-sovereign God who has spoken a thing or two about the way people that he has created are to behave and that he will hold us accountable for the way that we live our lives, then it, it really doesn't matter how we feel. It really doesn't matter what we think or what our hearts are begging us to do. It doesn't matter what laws have been passed. It doesn't matter what, whether or not people around us say this is okay or this is not okay. All that matters is what he says, what he thinks what he has determined is right and good and healthy. Again, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. We want to know what God has to say about all of this. And we're about to find out. Well, Moses allowed us to write a certificate of divorce and send our wives away. What do you think, Jesus? Verse 5. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, the reason that Moses had to write about divorce was because the people had lost all respect for marriage. And they were passing each other around like The flavor of the month. They were treating each other like commodities, like amusement park attractions. Once you had your fill of one, well, then you're on to the next. Well, then maybe you realize the next wasn't so great, so you move back to the first one. But Jesus knew, and they knew, and we know from our study in Genesis that God didn't design marriage to be treated that way. Jesus goes on to quote Genesis. But from the beginning of creation, and he quotes, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage, as designed by God, not as defined by our society is the lasting union between one man and one woman. This is the way God intended it. This is the way he made it. When two people are married, they are joined together by God. That word joined there used in Genesis indicates the strongest possible bond. It's a, it's a gorilla glue word. It can be translated cling, fasten, stuck A whole bunch of other sticky-type words. By the way, if you run out of hairspray, Gorilla Glue is not a good option. (laughs) It's just a little free public service announcement there. Marriage is meant to be a sticky business. Marriage, as God designed it, is also a mathematical equation. One plus one equals... One, when I dropped one of Melissa's favorite mugs, it was two. (laughs) Thank goodness for that gorilla glue. It is now one, once again. One pastor points out that one of the ways two becoming one is most clearly visualized is in the product of marriage, the typical product of marriage, children. Two, and now we have this one, and sometimes another one, and sometimes another one, and another one, and then the parents are pulling out their hair and going and saying, where's a babysitter? Well, you're at church. There are babysitters here. That's a powerful picture that God has given us, isn't it? It's powerful. And we're not unfamiliar with the powerful damage that can be done to children when mom and dad decide to go Their separate ways. God never meant for marriage to have a back door. There's no escape clause. This was it. It was final, it was binding, it was serious. And that's why adultery or even desiring another person's spouse is absolutely forbidden. That takes us all the way back to Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. These are core. You don't get to go exploring uh, after the claim has been staked. You're done. Period. That's it. In fact, this was such a big deal that in Exodus 20.10, we read this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Very serious. Someone might say, well, that sounds very, uh, rather, very uh, harsh. Yes, it is. Uh, It seems like God is taking this whole marriage thing just a little too seriously. Yes, he takes it seriously. Very seriously. I thought God was supposed to be a loving sort of chap. You're right. He's loving. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's forgiving. And we see examples of that in his word, even when it comes to marriage. King David stole away another man's wife, then went so far as to have the husband killed so that he could keep it quiet and cover it all up. He's confronted by God's man, by the prophet Nathan. And he confesses, David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. That's incredible mercy right there. Time and time again, the Bible proclaims that God is the Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank God he is. God is patient, he is faithful, he is loving, he is gracious and merciful. He forgives again and again and again. But we have to remember that he is also just. And it's because of that justice that marriage is taken seriously. And it's because of that justice that Christ went to the cross. And at the cross, that's where we see the depth of his love and also the seriousness of our sin. Throughout history, people have taken advantage of God's patience, of his grace, of his mercy. In the case of these first century Pharisees, that patience and grace, it led them to just take this for granted. God's going to forgive us. Treat marriage as some sort of joke. It's not a joke. Back in the house, Jesus' disciples asked him more about the subject of divorce. Verse 11 says this He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Adultery. Divorce and remarriage are not part of God's plan. They happen because of what happened in Genesis 3. They happen as a result of humanity's departure from God's way in exchange of that for doing things their way. Divorce happens because of sin. It happens because of selfishness. It happens because of cruelty, neglect, violence, abuse, abandonment, unfaithfulness, greed, lust, and a whole lot of other things we don't have time to talk about today. We need to come to grips with that. We need to acknowledge that. Divorce happens because sin happens. And just as sin is a departure from God's good design, so divorce is a departure from it. We should never look at divorce as an easy way out. Never. It's not just a simple get out of jail free card. It's something we grieve, something we mourn. It's a testimony to an even greater rift, separation between us and God because of sin. Here in Mark 10, the Pharisees said that all you need for a good divorce is to just have the right paperwork. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And that's the way a lot of people see it. (laughs) It's not ideal. Wouldn't wish it upon anyone. It'd be nice if everyone could find true love and live happily ever after. But a lot of times, it just doesn't work. That's, That's all right. It's okay. You can always try again there's a little bit of a hassle here. You need to get the paperwork in order, maybe you need to get a lawyer. Maybe you need to divide up the spoils or figure out the visitation rights. In God's eyes, it's so much more than that. Divorce is the result of sin, and divorce is one of the reasons that Jesus went to the cross, that the separation between us and God might be done away with, and we might be forever joined with him in paradise where there will be no divorce the end someone might say wait a second hold on there are a few exceptions here right are you telling me that god considers it adultery whenever anyone gets divorced and remarried i'm not saying that In Ezra 9, verses 1 through 2, the people of Israel had done exactly what God had told them not to do. They had intermarried with the pagan worshipers of the land. And that was beginning to rub off on them. It was having a big impact on them. They, too, were wandering away from their their faith. They were exchanging worship of the one true God for worship of ridiculous idols. Prophet Ezra confronts them. They're convicted, deeply convicted, concerning their sin. And a mass divorce takes place. Hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many divorces were taking place. Divorce is not God's design, and yet divorce was the better option than walking away from God completely. Divorce is a terrible thing. Idolatry is worse. Here's another example. Even though Israel had walked away from God time and time and time again, God remained faithful to Israel. The people of Israel, they had committed this spiritual adultery, following all these other idols, forgetting their one true love. God would not divorce them. And yet, when the northern kingdom was no longer ruled by kings from the Davidic line, And after hundreds and hundreds of years of grace and patience, Jeremiah 3.8 tells us that God did let the northern kingdom go. In fact, it it actually says, I sent her away with the decree of divorce. It would seem that in God's mind there is an exception. Matthew 19.9, Matthew 5.32, Jesus affirms this exception. In uh, 5.32, he writes, or it says this, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Then in 19.9, it says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, we read that if Christian is divorced, excuse me, is divorced by an unbelieving spouse, someone that doesn't trust in Jesus, that has no regard for God's commands, and, and, and they up and leave that Christian husband or wife, then that believer is innocent and free to remarry. So yes, there are some exceptions. Unfaithfulness and abandonment are pretty clear here. And yet, even when those take place, I think there's good reason to wait, and good reason to hope, and good reason to pray, to exemplify Christ like love and forgiveness and fight for reconciliation. I've sat with couples who had reason to end it, it's over. And the work that Christ had done in a husband's or a wife's heart was made evident as that person, through tears and heartbreak, said, I will forgive. Some of those powerful testimonies, the love of Christ in believers, are when a husband or wife has been terribly wronged by an unfaithful spouse and yet is able to forgive, seek reconciliation, and work toward restoration. So who wants to hear about divorce? I don't like talking about this. Probably no more than you enjoy hearing about it. Any way you slice it, divorce is tragic. It's heartbreaking. It's a departure from God's design. That's why those of us who are married and those who may be married someday, we must keep Jesus Christ and his church in the forefront of our minds. If we love our spouses like Christ loved us as he laid down his life, surrendering his rights, doing whatever it took for our good, then divorce goes away. It doesn't happen. But so very often divorce does happen. Let's call out to our God for mercy. Let's call out for the grace to show each other the love of Christ that we need to show that he would deliver us from this and our future. Lord, we so very often are not like you. We fight and we frustrate. We use and abuse. We put our selfish desires above the good of others, and we hurt others in the process. Lord, you invented marriage, and we invented divorce. Forgive us, forgive us, Lord, for our departure from your design, for our dismantling of your design. For we who are married, Lord, save our marriages from ourselves. May we humbly strive to be Jesus to those whom we've committed ourselves. Lord, for those who have experienced the tragic pain of divorce, and I know they are here Lord, would you bring comfort and bring assurance that the blood of Jesus covers over all of it, that this is one of the reasons that Jesus came? Lord, help us to live in righteousness from this day forward. For those who are not yet married, Lord, help us to start learning selflessness and sacrifice and compassion and forgiveness, Lord, that we might be better prepared for someday that day when we may need it most, and Lord, for those who will remain single, Lord, we pray that our lives, our lives would be lived out in holiness and faithfulness to You. May we find everything that we need. May we find our value in You, and may we use our lives to point others to the awesome sufficiency and beauty of our Lord and Savior. We ask all of this in the mighty and awesome name of Jesus, our living Lord. Amen.